Chapter 1. The King's Highway. July, 1773. Four full moons have passed since Adahi's mother met eternal rest from yellow fever. With only a few days of acquiring it from a winter trading trip, her body began to fail. The remedies from the shaman were of no use combating the fever, black vomit, and violent convulsions. In her last moments, she weakly grabbed Adahi's hand, forced to smile through the suffering. It's going to be alright, my son. I will be painless, she said softly, letting out a tear from her pallid eyes. The pain of her death is immeasurable. She was the only person in his life that he knew unconditionally loved him. Her memory captures his thoughts every moment on the long and arduous journey to Boston. Adhi carried his pain well in his mind, but was clearly visible through his lamented green eyes. Adhi stood six feet one inch from the ground and vigorously built. Deerskin-sewn shoes shielded his feet, laced up just above his ankles. Light brown trousers covered his legs as an inner layer all the way to his waist. His black outer leggings are thigh-high and tied off just above the knee by black and brown finger-woven garters. The faded black tricorn hat was once his father's, along with the gold talisman that rested securely around his neck and the musket resting in his lap. His square jaw and strong chin resting underneath the high cheekbones carried a slight stubble, while his countenance was that of perpetual rancor. Summer came quickly and was becoming a swelter under the scorching Carolina sun. The King's Highway route to Boston was a long trek on horseback and even longer when the weight of death is on your soul. Adahi has been traveling a fortnight on the road with his loyal horse, Raven, a rare horse in these parts that was gifted by his mother's brother, Wohali, a member of the Tribal War Council, when Adahi was 16. For the last several years, she has been Adahi's trusted companion. Even she seemed not to enjoy the sweltering air. The saddlebags behind Adahi are filled with supplies meant for a journey with no return. Several pistols, ammunition, paper cartridges, extra horns of powder, and a haversack are all stored on one side. Also tightly concealed is a bow and quiver filled with many sharp arrows. In the opposite saddlebags are deer jerky rations, bread, a gray coat, a tomahawk, and encampment tools. A thin wool blanket rolled into a larger one sits on across the tops of both bags, providing Adahi a proper backrest along the journey. There are three muskets that he carries, each serving their own purpose. The blunderbuss with the shorter barrel flared to the tip stayed on his back, fastened securely. The second was a British brown bess, which is holstered in Raven's leather left side carrier. The French musket that was passed down from his father sits across his lap. It is a Charleville Model 1728. The air becomes staler with each step, and by midday, the shade from the overhanging trees on the King's Highway is a much welcomed relief. On his chest, over top his long-sleeved shirt, he carries one flintlock dragoon and a custom leather holster, and two flying talon blades sheathed on his ribs. These weapons are fastened to a leather weave chest carrier. The chest rig itself is covered from shoulder to shoulder and down to his waist. A three-inch wide waist belt was woven through the bottom section of the carrier and was buckled on his left side. Two shoulder straps wrapped around his shoulders tightly, keeping the chest rig stable and secured to his body. The leather woven chest rig is designed so Adahi could exchange his pistols and knives to any setup that made him more efficient in combat. After his mother passed, the Tribal War Council outfitted him with custom saddlebags, the fitted chest carrier, and a custom front left saddle holster for muskets, among other resourceful tools. Adahi enjoyed the leather chest carrier as it was easily concealable by his gray coat and could be worn with everyday clothing comfortably. With each step in the stale air, Adahi's mind goes back to those last moments. It's going to be alright, my son. 
the words echo in his mind with each of Raven's strides. The birds whistle around but cannot seem to break his constant stare. Nightfall soon arrives to claim the day. Adahi rides a bit into the darkness, reaching a lodging tavern along the road. He guides Raven to the hitching post, unsaddles, and ties up the horse. You are the perfect traveling companion, Raven, he says, petting the side of the horse's long face before ritually placing his forehead on the horse. You never disagree with getting off the road. He unstraps a greatcoat and puts it on, buttoning the collar high, loosely hiding half his face. Adahi then takes the saddlebags off Raven and throws them over his shoulder, taking all his tools with him. He heads into the tavern with a wooden sign out front reading, Santee River Tavern. Inside, there is one drunken man in the corner unconscious, and the barkeep seems to have just woken up to the sound of their arrival. He stands up straight, clearing his throat. <coughs> good evening. Highway travels deserve good food and uninterrupted sleep, the tall, largely built older man says while pouring Adahi a drink. Would you be staying the night? Yes, I believe I will. Five pence per night, the barkeep says smoothly. Proper rate, innkeeper, he replies respectively. I will stay three nights and give my horse clean water each morn. And he finishes, placing five shillings on the bar top. Very good, sir. Right away. The barkeep grabs a key off the wall under the number three hook. Room three is yours until you leave. Currency never fails to instill excitement and enthusiasm in the colonies. It's been almost 10 years since King George III has imposed his unique taxes on the colonies, and it would seem to have the opposite effect as intended. It wasn't the first time they were taxed, but it was the first time they've begun seeing the British trying to enforce it. It was all the talk in the taverns along Adahi's route. A rising, anti-British sentiment was growing, and Adahi saw that clearly the further he traveled north. The old barkeep comes around from the backside of the bar and heads outside to fetch new water for Raven's trough. Adahi opens the left side of his greatcoat, withdrawing a nine-inch clay pipe and pouch of crisp tobacco. He pulls out a generous pinch of tobacco and from the pouch, firmly packing the pipe bowl with his thumb. Adahi notices a candle nearby and grabs it from the candle bra, then uses a glowing flame to ignite his freshly packed pipe. Shall I take your things to the room, sir? He asks Adahi upon re-entering the tavern. No, that will not be necessary, Adahi replies as he looks around the tavern. He notices it hasn't seen proper business in several months. I am fortunate for your business in choosing my establishment for your lodging, the old barkeep says ardently. Although our tavern has met the downturn these last few years, it's a nice sight, fresh faces. Many redcoats travel through these parts, Adahi asserts sharply after a long draw from the pipe, releasing smoke with his words. The old man takes a serious tone, undoubtedly upset and unsure of the patron's true intention, says slowly, Unfortunately, yes. What is your name, barkeep? Adahi asks, taking another drag from the pipe, keeping the ember hot. Daniel Mullen. I own this establishment, he states directly as he pours himself an ale and continues speaking. At first, they were infrequent. And then with time, they begin badgering our guests after stopping in weekly from Georgetown and Charleston. Stealing as they please. He looks around his empty tavern. As you can see, they are effective in their work. That I can plainly see. Yes. Add, he says, scanning the empty tavern, finishing his drink. What else? Well, sir, they claim men's wives at will and burn properties for disputing their actions. He says, lowering his head typical British foot soldier, always resorting to destruction when others disagree with their malicious actions they claimed are justified by the crown. 
terrible wretches, Adi, he thought to himself. Has an attempt been made to cease their conduct? Adi, he asked directly. No, for they are the king's men, and a firestorm will erupt if we retaliate with violence. This isn't Boston. I have often conjured plans in my mind, but never acted on my wishes, he says anxiously and continues. What do you suggest we do, stranger? Redcoats won't listen even after a beating, Adi, he says plainly. There is only one solution, old man. That is death. Only not a death that will bring you trouble. Daniel Mullen's face is petrified at Adahi's directness, but knows his words hold validity. He clearly has thought about this solution once or twice before, and realizes a confrontation is imminent. How? he asks. If they are killed here, I will be hung in the streets of Georgetown as a traitor. Give me the night, barkeep, and I will have your answer in the morn. For now, may I have a refill? Yes, sir. Adahi stops a barkeep from pouring. I will require your indefinite discretion, and you will be questioned upon the execution of this plan, Adi says bluntly. Young sir, the crown and king do not hold my loyalty. The colonies do. The continental cause does. Rest assured, young man, my family and I are no king's men. Haven't been for nearly one hundred years, he replies surely, continuing to pour the whiskey. We shall see. Adi, he replies before dying the remainder of the whiskey and heading upstairs into room three with his gear. Early on the third day, Daniel Mullen received information claiming that the belligerent redcoats had left Georgetown and would be here by midday. The plan was formally established between Adahi and the barkeep in the days and nights prior. Daniel was to entertain the soldiers happily until they left inebriated. Adahi was set to ambush the soldiers far enough away from the tavern making it seem they were killed by vexed natives. Adahi loaned his trust to the barkeep, and if this operation were successful, the barkeep would have it. Everything was in place at the tavern when the redcoats arrive. Adahi and their plan are in motion. Walking the road from Georgetown is a vigorous journey, and the 12 British light infantry soldiers stop at the tavern as expected. But it's a smaller size element than anticipated. Within hours, the redcoats are drunk, being hostile and combative with the barkeep and his patrons. The soldiers even commit the wife of a patron to the garrison barracks the next day, promising their return. After harassing the barkeep and not paying their tab, they stumble outside under the dark new moon sky. The air is dank on the king's highway this late, with frogs loudly croaking in the shadows. Halfway to the garrison, four furlongs south, the drunken soldiers find themselves chanting their national anthem happily singing out a tune god save great george our king long live our noble king god save the king send him victorious happy and glorious long to reign over us god save the <laughs> an arrow sliced through the neck of the tallest redcoat in the rear of the group releasing a steady outflow of blood, replacing his singing with choking and gurgling. Thwip! A second arrow immediately follows the first, striking a red coat in the chest. In the stillness of the night, you can hear the arrowhead piercing his air-filled lung. Gasping with their last breaths, the two initially struck immediately fall to their knees, quickly bleeding out. The rest of the drunken soldiers begin aimlessly firing their muskets into the dark wilderness on the flanks of the road. Flashes erupt from the locks, and the trees split from the British shots. Another arrow cuts the muggy night air. Thwip! 
A third soldier releases a quick wheeze before dropping in the road. A fierce precision arrow penetrates between his clavicle bones, snapping his spinal cord on the way out. The remaining nine soldiers begin to huddle around the fallen. Two attempts to treat the wounded. In a drunken stupor, the frantic and overwhelmed redcoats fail to distinguish the origins of this massacre, still firing randomly into the darkness. The musket firing and smoke blending with the pitch blackness and horrifying screams make for a hellish sight. From a new position, multiple arrows begin raining misery onto the redcoats repeatedly. Thwip, 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 thwip. Within a matter of moments, the firing has stopped, and the silence is quickly rejoined by croaking frogs and the newly faint echoes of dying men. From the outer perimeter of the garrison, the struggling gunfire is heard by the pair of roving foot patrols. The two garrison guards begin running toward the sound of the drowning musket fire. Immediately after the guards begin to sprint, it falls quiet in the wilderness, excluding the frogs. A few minutes go by and the two guards come across the dead. A mutilated pile of twelve British light infantry soldiers with a collection of arrows in each lay gruesomely in the road. One of the guards immediately vomits in the road. A combination of seldom sprinting and the defiled dead. The guard unclinched says, Bear witness to slaughter, Greenhorn. This is a work of savages. It had to be a column with their blasted arrows, tormenting us from the shadows, he says the lyricy dropping to the ground on his knees. Hmm, but why scalp them? The red savages in these parts don't hold a reputation for scalps, the calm soldier says speculatively. Disgraced war trophies. Awful bloody things. We need to leave now. Who knows how many more there are near? Fear controls his thoughts and is heard in his voice. We need to report this immediately, says the collected guard. Get back on your feet and let's return. The two guards sprint back to the garrison as quickly as they could. Upon arrival, they reveal what they heard and witnessed in detail to the superior officers. A caravan is sent within minutes to ensure the legitimacy of the guard's story and to collect the bodies, if necessary. Just before dawn, the caravan of 50 British infantry regulars and horse-drawn wagons returned. With it followed dreadful news, carrying 12 scalped Englishmen, confirming the two guards' stories. The major at the garrison issues foot patrols doubled around the perimeter. No party smaller than 20 will travel the King's Highway between Georgetown and Charleston, and local establishments are to be warned of the attack and heated caution while traveling after dark. Local taverns and brothels are off-limits until the savage culprits are caught and brought to justice. Tracking parties are sent into the wilderness immediately surrounding the garrison and location of the murder to find anything that will lead them to the killers. The atmosphere around the garrison is apprehensive yet fervently hostile. Creeping over the horizon, the sun breaks a plane supplying light into the world. Dawn was Adahi's favorite time as the crisp cool air from the black nights prior and the aroma of the fresh sun in the world clashed in a beautiful battle each morn. It was perfect. Adahi sits atop Raven walking her to the entrance of the Santee River Tavern. He unsaddles a black mare, then ties her reins to the hitching post. Adahi presses his forehead against a horse's head for a brief moment and collects his thoughts, then walks inside. The old barkeep was already awake, rummaging through some wooden crates behind the counter. There is no drunken fool unconscious in a corner this morn, and the small wooden doors over the windows have been opened, letting in the beautiful early sun. The old barkeep speaks from around the corner, still occupied. Weary traveler! May I offer you some crisp, steaming coffee? Many redcoats travel through these parts? Addie he asked in a mirrored tone as the first day he arrived. 
The man, recognizing the voice, lifts his head smiling and comes around the bar. Howdy, young man. I must shake your hand. The garrison redcoats are restricted to local establishments and definitely due to some trouble with some Indians. They say scalped them. The barkeep says aptly. It's a temporary fix, old man. Once they realize there are not any real natives taking advantage of the drunken soldiers, they will soon be back tormenting the local people. I know. Daniel says to Adahi quietly. I will use this peaceful time to contact my friends in the Northeast and try to persuade them to come and work here if ever more issues pertaining to the garrison redcoats arises. A growing sentiment echoes in the shadows of taverns and meeting houses. I'll take you up on that coffee if you don't mind, says Adahi, trying to change the subject away from the redcoats. Right away. Would you like some forced eggs as well? Daniel asks Adahi as he grabs a kettle for the coffee. No, thank you. Coffee is just fine, replies Adahi. The old barkeep rounds the corner and begins boiling water over the fire. In what seemed like seconds, the distinct bean aroma fills the tavern quickly and is a welcoming scent to the journeying young man. Upon its completion, Daniel pours Adahi and himself two steaming mugs. Together they enjoy the silence and the piping black sludge coffee. Forty minutes pass and Adahi stands up. Well, old man, I'm off. Time to continue my path. This is the best coffee I have had in an exceptionally long time. Thank you for your hospitality has been generous. Aye, well, it was my pleasure. And if you don't mind, where are you headed? The old barkeep asks as he takes the last sip of coffee. Boston, by way of the King's Highway, he says, stretching his back. What is a young man of your talent doing headed to Boston? Seems like you would be a perfect fit for the underground continental cause in Philadelphia, Daniel Mullins says to him convincingly. Adahi, knowing this man is a trustworthy individual and having a good feeling about him from day one, opens up and tells Daniel Mullen his mission. Before my mother died, she instructed me to find Major Thomas Young. He is my father's brother, and he could help me learn more of my father and that side of my family. Adahi says plainly and continues. Mother died of yellow fever, and according to her, my father was on the run for years by privateers, bounty hunters, and mercenaries, all hired by King George II. They eventually caught up to him and killed him. She really spoke his name. Thomas Young was one of the most notorious officers during the French and Indian War. Daniel Mullen says in all the young man's story, That is a man I need to find, Addie replies smoothly to the old barkeep. On your way, if you find yourself in Philadelphia, stop by Tun Tavern. My cousin owns the place. I believe his son Robert runs it now. And my younger, well, younger than me, cousin Wilfred owns a mug tavern outside Boston in the town of Brookline. If you ever need a good ale and a place to relax, these are the places to be. Daniel says happily and continues. Well, sir, I do believe you will find who you're looking for. Thomas Young is a prominent leader in the city, and he is doing great things for the underground continental cause without disruption. How do he listen to the words and remembers the names of the taverns in case he needs to utilize the resources later in life? It is always good to keep contacts and trustworthy people and locations. How he learn this at an early age? It has been a busy few days, but I'm glad to put your redcoat worries at ease. It does people no good to be bullied, harmed, or killed by your king and his men. I'm always happy to help in that area when I can, that he says directly to Daniel Mullen. Aye, thank you. Your actions will spread through the colonies fast. Drink the rest of this coffee before you embark. You're going to need it. The old barkeep fills a mug to the brim as Adahi sits back down, withdrawing his clay pipe and tobacco pouch. 
By midday the sun was at full brilliance with no clouds in the blue sky, a truly riveting sight. Addie had left the Santee River Tavern over an hour ago, but still couldn't get over that damn coffee. Before leaving, he had Mr. Mullen fill up one of his spare canteens with as much of it as he could carry. With his left hand, he grabs a gold talisman and clutches it tightly, thinking of his mother. The sentiments fade from missing his mother to the mission and her wish for him. The road was long indeed, but the resilience of Adahi was great, and he was steadfast and youthfully determined.